The Trace Against Time, 1. Pablo Picasso made no bones about the wish he brought to his encounters with technical media, first photography, then film. It was to see conserved the successive changes going into a work, which are lost upon completion of the process. The mediatic prospect of simultaneity of visualization and remembrance was the place Freud marked in his book of Analogues for Unconscious Thought. To illustrate the unconscious, he asked us to see the history of a city in the light of remembrance. When gazing upon Rome, see not only the Colosseum, for example, but also, at the same time, the edifices it replaced. There is certainly not a little that is ancient still buried in the soil of the city or beneath its modern buildings. This is the manner in which the past is preserved in historical sites like Rome. Now let us, by a flight of the imagination, suppose that Rome is not a human habitation, but a psychical entity with a similarly long and copious past. An entity, that is to say, in which nothing that has once come into existence will have passed away, and all the earlier phases of development continue to exist alongside the latest one. This would mean that in Rome the palaces of the Caesars would still be rising to their old height on the Palatine. But more than this, in the place occupied by the Palazzo Cavarelli, would once more stand, without the Palazzo having to be removed, the Temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, and this not only in its latest shape, as the Romans of the Empire saw it, but also in its earliest one, when it still showed Etruscan forms. The model for this instructive assignment was the POV affixed by grief and misplaced in time that Freud had already used to illustrate hysteria. The hysteric is like a modern citizen of London who, before the train station Charing Cross, still recognizes and grieves over the original station in the crossing of the funeral procession bearing Queen Eleanor to her place of burial. Only the POV, fixated in deep melancholy, sees in the city's historical monuments souvenirs of grievous events, and by endopsychic extension, in hysterical symptoms, the mnemonic symbols of traumatic experience. The witness stuck in grief can see better the alternate realities that fold out of loss. Henri-Georges Clouseau and his wife Vera became Pablo Picasso's neighbors and close friends upon relocating to southern France. Clouseau's documentary artist film, The Mystery of Picasso, followed in 1956, but it also followed directly upon and out of Clouseau's breakthrough suspense thriller from the year before, Les Diaboliques. In the footnote underworld of his study, Book of Kings, Klaus Tevelite assigns to Vera Clouseau the role of Eurydice between the men going into their art film, in which a new technique, one from the visit to Hades, allowed paint and color to emerge directly on the screen. Although Vera Clouseau was around for three more films, the coincidence can't be discounted between the heart ailment of Christina, the figure she played in Les Diaboliques, who in the end is shocked to death by a staged haunting, 
and her own weakness, to which she succumbed in 1960. The 1952 novel that Clouseau adapted, She Who Was No More, by Boileau Nassayac, assigned the heart condition to the man in the triangle, who, however, jumps the gun when it looks like the missing body of his wife has come back for him. He thought he and his girlfriend had murdered her, but it's both women who walk away from their perfect crime. In the film, the wife is the dupe, and the husband she thought she murdered was all along in cahoots with the other woman who only pretended to be her accomplice. The manipulated death of Christina and Les Diaboliques adapts less the novel and more Vera's heart condition and future heart attack. But by overlooking the delay, Tevelite does underscore that the relationship to Vera Clouseau's mortal illness was one to be watched as much as staged. The mystery of Picasso was at first projected to be another short in line with the veritable subgenre of film documents of artists' painting that followed Paul Essert's 1949 Visite à Picasso. Instead, Clouseau wrapped at feature length Picasso's melancholy wish to witness the changes going into his art making, not like the architectural history of Rome, according to Freud's evocation of what the unconscious alone can see, but in a roundabout compromise formation reminiscent of Freud's turn to the mystic writing pad. You can watch the film document of the process, which outlasts in advance the completion of the painted work, but the result is a succession of images rather than the simultaneity of unconscious remembrance. Each station of the film is demarcated in the manner of the mystic writing pad, lifting away one image from the screen to clear it for the next image in progress. At one point, Clouseau offers a cinematic answer to where the painting goes. He reverses the film to redo or undo the painting process we just witnessed. The works we watch unfold in variations and versions in The Mystery of Picasso count as missing and were most likely destroyed upon the film's completion. The ambivalence testifies to the import of the film for Picasso, who brought along for the recording his discovery of the special ink shining through the sheets, his own motion picturing of a live transparency in intimation of simultaneity. Although Picasso had the ego strength to accept the compromise, the foreign body of his unfulfillable wish triggers side effects of the impossible possibility of simultaneity, acted out in the scene of Clouseau's challenge to Picasso to complete a painting in the time left before the roll of film runs out. The suspense Clouseau builds in this scene is continuous with signature moments in his earlier films, including the 1953 elaboration of the life-or-death consequences of hauling nitroglycerin and the wages of fear. The high point of Clouseau's mastery in the genre, however, was the death by haunting special effects in Les Diaboliques, which prompted Hitchcock to assign the film to his crew working on Psycho for constant study of the scene's consummate construction of suspense. Clouseau had beaten Hitchcock to the draw in obtaining the rights to adapt She Who Was No More, a setback Hitchcock reversed 
when he successfully secured the next novel by Boileau-Nassayac, The Living and the Dead, which he made into Vertigo, his 1957 construction of a haunted POV held in suspense by body doubles. At the time he made Psycho, Hitchcock relied on a new suspense account opened through his work on television, the medium defined by its ability to transmit live, that's the fantasy referee of Clouseau's staging of a real-time contest between filming and painting. Hitchcock made Psycho with the crew of his TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, from both sides of the contest between film and television, which he had been studying closely. In my 2016 study, The Psycho Records, I track the post-traumatic impact of the shower scene, the primal scene of secular horror or shower, and follow the staggered course of the psycho effect through its own subgenre, slasher and splatter movies, unto a termination phase of its film therapy, which was reached by the 1990s. Toward the finish line, the psycho could become the mascot for the teen or preteen audience because a sister had arrived to give a value to survival that went beyond its equation with killing. Leading up to the time of Hitchcock's detour through television, Adorno studied the new medium in the 1950s in terms of the culture industries doubling and shrink-wrapping of our sensorium to fit the swift attention span of expertise. A POV trained on evaluation of the realism lying in the technical details. Adorno in How to Look at Television. Modern audiences, although probably less capable of the artistic sublimation bred by tradition, have become shrewder in their demands for perfection of technique and for reliability of information. Mass culture, therefore, Adorno continues, if not sophisticated, must at least be up to date, that is to say, realistic or posing as realistic, in order to meet the expectations of a supposedly disillusioned, alert, and hard-boiled audience. Adorno argues that TV murder mystery is immersed in or comes out of this expert verification of pseudo-realism heightened by suspicion. The way the spectator is made to look at apparently everyday items and to take as hints of possible crime common settings of his daily life induces him to look at life itself as though it and its conflicts could generally be understood in such terms. What matters is not the importance of crime as a symbolic expression of otherwise controlled sexual or aggressive impulses, but the confusion of this symbolism with a pedantically maintained realism in all matters of direct sense perception. Hitchcock installed in this set of responses a demo of his technical realization of Fright Unseen. The shower scene cited and summoned our death wishes to supply the equation between the cuts of editing and the stabs of murder. In the crime dramas crowding the TV set in the 1950s, Adorno concludes in television as ideology, it is not the victim, not the survivors at the end of the murder spree, but the criminal alone who models the cynical norm of adaptation. However, 
before the norm of adaptation on TV can be said to be criminal is in the first place adolescent, which means that a period can be set to the psychopathic violence. The psycho effect carried out the hope that D.W. Winnicott attributed to juvenile delinquency, the reality effect of the death wish that passes. Two. Clouseau's race against TV can be seen to replay another race between his film protagonist and another film director's artist subject, Jackson Pollock. Film documentation of a painter painting reformats as psychological test situation the self-reflexivity of reflective or transparent surfaces from the glass on which Picasso paints in the Hessart's film to the see-through screens in Clouseau's feature. That Picasso passes the test, for example, by not surrendering to the finish line of the contest, but in other ways as well, may obscure this issue, but doesn't annul it. That Hans Namut's 1951 film of Pollock painting is a test before it is a document, is also made manifest by the introduction of glass, the reflecting surface on which the artist is directed to paint. The conditions of the test are significantly aggravated by the placement of the camera. Pollock's process famously was a dance-like involvement of the body in the art of painting, which the canvas on the ground helped choreograph. To be filmed from below through this horizon recalls and triggers a derangement of the mirror relation, which the peripheral recording of the painter at work face-to-face with the canvas, upholds. To be seen and reflected from below immediately extends the mirror relation to its intrapsychic afterimage, the body in pieces. That the Namut film test put a strain on the narcissistic disorder for which Pollock self-medicated has been taken far indeed by those speculating that the artist's mental balance shifted into decline as a direct consequence. On the soundtrack of Namut's film, Pollock's voiceover comments that his painting on glass is a new event in the history of his practice, and then begins again after, as he says, he has lost contact with the glass. For the next try, he introduces by a mixed media layering of detritus a less transparent foundation for the painting. The split between soundtrack and silent film manifests as sublime what, underneath it all, is also the document of the near decompensation of the artist as psychological test subject. In Clouseau's film, Picasso announces that he will strip away or destroy one work with which he has lost contact, a loss he first staggered by applying a sort of sedimentation to the surface prep work reminiscent of Pollock's second try. Tearing away as best defense of the contact high means that Picasso tests on the safe side of the border to psychosis. When it comes to the big picture, however, we are given to identify with lost causes, which we reverse or restore for a prospect of history without precursors. The way Roman mythico-poetics got around Greece through identification with Troy. Following the Hessart's Picasso film, 
the Namut document introduced Pollock as mascot for a post-war American painting, billed as a new start without precedent or compromise. Beyond the vulnerability of the artist as film test subject, Pollock's mad reputation found its pop cultural rhyme with psycho criminality, Jack the Dripper. Does this reflect the adaptation to the horror and crime detection setting of psychopathic violence as seen on American TV, according to Adorno? The trend counted a late arrival in the cluster of commercial films made in the late 1990s by established U.S. visual artists like Cindy Sherman's Office Killer, in which the protagonist who produces simulacra of the director's own artworks outside the film invariably qualifies as psycho. At the time, a declaration of independence in the U.S. film industry allowed Hollywood to compete against itself and eliminate the competition of European art cinema, which these films, directed by bona fide artists, represented and repressed. In the finite course of the psycho effect, we saw that the psycho could serve as mascot, like Pollock, because the innovation of the survivor, Picasso, was holding sway. The image that concludes the scene of the race between painting and filming in The Mystery of Picasso looks like another one of Picasso's grimacing pagans or demons. Tavoli takes us by surprise when he identifies it as the artist's self-portrait. Tavolite's speculation allows me to re-enter the Narcissus legend, but via Pausanias, who argued that it was not his own semblance or portrait that riveted Narcissus. It was his recognition of his lookalike sister, back from the dead, looking out of his reflection. What outlasts the final image at the end of the race is Picasso's sketched portrait of his younger sister, Concepcion, which he made when he was a child prodigy. The scene in which the portrait was made was installed in Picasso by age 13 upon her death. The artist followed the scene's reprisal in the Clouseau couple into the project with Clouseau. In photographs taken at the Cannes Film Festival of the Clouseau couple and Picasso already in 1953, we catch the painter delightedly but fixedly watching Vera, for signs of a projected demise or its containment. The eight-year-old Concepcion died at the end of a protracted case of diphtheria over which the family watched and prayed, bargaining with God for her health in exchange for the sacrifice of the very vitality of survival, including the future of the young artist's vocation. There is a motif that recurs in Picasso's work early on, showing a sleeping or inert woman lying under the watch of a male figure, a scene carried forward throughout his oeuvre, often in the self-reflexive setting of the painter or sculptor gazing at the revenant, a woman to be watched, recuperated as his model. This is as far as the scene of Concepcion's death watch made it into Picasso's pictorial art but it was a scene that gained new traction for Picasso's repeated reinterpretation in the years following the making of The Mystery of Picasso. Françoise Gio recalls, 
I didn't know at the time that it was a recurring pattern, but after Maya's birth, Pablo began abandoning Marie-Thérèse and seemed unable to get on with his work. The birth of a girl in Pablo's life was clearly traumatic. He had made a pact with God over his little sister, and now he was reliving the trauma of that pact over the birth of his daughter. She might die, and then he would feel terribly guilty, or she would live, and his work would suffer. All his unresolved fears were activated again. He kept saying how beautiful Paloma was, but he was restless, agitated. It was a creatively barren time, and he even started talking about getting another apartment where I could be with the children when we were in Paris. The pledge to give up his art for Concepcion's continued existence turned around into her blessing in disguise. It was the blessé, the birth of a daughter, reintroduced by intercepting the guardian of his conception art within the family plan of substitution. Picasso's compulsively belabored scene of the artist at work gazing upon his model keeps turning the vigil kept for the dying sister into the staging area of his art. The sister stands surety that his future was rescued from the underworld by the look back at her. By its subterranean proximity to simultaneity and live transmission, the contest scene and the mystery of Picasso releases the portrait of Concepcion. It is not the parting shot, nor is it the promise of early work, but the ongoing price and prize at the end of a trace against time that all the representations of inert women under the painter's gaze in a row could not show. In Les Diaboliques, the staging of death or undeath to induce a cardiac patient's exitus is the death-wish version of the watch for signs of recovery or decline. The scene therefore bears being turned around by the child witness, the schoolboy Moinet, whose ill-fitting testimony is situated within the loop of a fully projected ambivalence. Twice in the film, his testimony is denied as punishable mendacity. But after the fact, his first outrageous claim proves true, that he saw the schoolmaster we presumed dead ends up substantiated when the plot is revealed and foiled. Christina did respond to the boy's testimony, which she mistook to signal a visitation by her murder victim. But when she confessed her crime to the detective, he was misled by the ghost story. Then at the end of the film, following the conclusive scene of Christina's fatal heart attack, Moinet is punished for his fantastic claim of continued contact with the schoolmistress, who, he alleges, herself restored the slingshot with which he has broken yet another window. Moinet's testimony is suspended between counter-testimony and mendacity like the legendary pronouncements of Cassandra. According to Melanie Klein's interpretation of the Oristia, the curse of a reception of disbelief expresses, she writes, the universal tendency towards denial. Denial is a potent defense against the persecutory anxiety and guilt which result from destructive impulses never being completely controlled. Denial, which is always bound up with persecutory anxiety, may undermine sympathy and consideration both with the internal and external objects and disturb the capacity for judgment and the sense of reality. 
Denial is the kernel of the hard shell of the early superego. The Arrhenius lead a procession of injured complainers in the Oristia, the retinue of the early maternal superego, which Athena intercepts and subsumes by a superego under parental, in other words, paternal guidance. Like Cassandra's struggle to be believed, the schoolboy Moinet's insistence at the end of Les Diaboliques announces the development of the superego toward consciousness and conscience away from the setting of pre-edible injury of and denial of love to the dead. His hard-to-follow testimony doesn't save Christina, but leads the detective in the end to serve justice. His second testimony addresses and entrusts to the audience the prospect of an identified ghost. A final title adjures the moviegoers to keep to themselves the ending of the film. Epilogue Picasso's entry upon the optical unconscious of cinema to extrapolate from the analog setting a form or forum of simultaneity is science fiction. SF authors H.G. Wells and Brian Aldiss were petitioners for Undead Sisters who defined the genre through the inside viewing of their double occupancy. In his experiment in autobiography, Wells included a childhood photograph of himself dressed as a girl with his slightly older brother standing next to him in boy's attire. The official gloss brushes the transfetism to the side of English habit at the time, but the displaced caption follows. My mother brought my brother, Freddie, into this world in 1862 and had her great tragedy in 1864 when my sister died of appendicitis. I was born two years and more after her death in 1866, and my mother decided that I had been sent to replace Fanny. In the time machine, a text that inaugurated the modern genre of science fiction, we follow a traveler to the future of a psychotic split between above ground, the Eloy, frail, unisex teenagers, reminiscent of the more beautiful kind of consumptive, grazing in Elysian fields, and below, the Morlocks, cannibals, who keep the Eloy as their cattle. One Eloy girl, Weena, attaches herself to the traveler who ultimately fails to save her from the metabolism of the underworld. But once he's back, his time-traveled memory of Weena's traumatic loss yields, in line with the time of narration, more the sorrow of a dream than an actual loss. This is where the trans of time travel, the across that Wells had to bear in childhood, can begin to be let go. Two years later, he interjected the death wish dynamic of mourning in the reunited and transformed couple at the end of The War of the Worlds, the novel that by its setting on contact with outer space counts as the other bookend of Wells's full entry upon the renewed genre. It's the last line of the novel. And strangest of all is to hold my wife's hand again and to think that I have counted her and that she has counted me among the dead. Brian Aldous, who saw himself as heir to Wells, wrote a story that Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg mixed in AI, artificial intelligence, with the fantasy happy end of Pinocchio 
Disney adaptation. Like the mecha robot and AI artificial intelligence, like the pets in the Geppetto household, the puppet is a figment of unconditional love, a throwback to or booster shot from the era of merger between mother and infant. The illusion of this fusion is a requirement for development, which the mother provides, according to Winnicott, by dint of a temporary state of psychosis. The only response to unconditional love is unconditional love, which means that it no longer exists in relation, but only in the one-way attitude of lovability. Pinocchio's iteration of Jonas and the Whale ends with the puppet boy dead in the water. The trial period of life and death with a puppet for a son was the fulfillment to watch out for. The good puppet giving up the ghost illuminates the deadness that Geppetto's wish fantasy concealed. By his finitude, the other is good and gone, gone for good, which the old man's grief acknowledges. The blue fairy can now grant a father's wish. In 1969, Aldous wrote the story Super Toys Last All Summer Long. Kubrick tried to adapt it in a mix with the Pinocchio story before passing it along to Spielberg like a demonic curse. Aldous had already objected to Kubrick's edition of the fantasy happy ending. His story closed on a suggested outcome that was inevitable given the misfiring between the robot boy's lovability and the adoptive mother, whose psychosis is not the kind, allowing for merger. She, however, seems granted a reprieve when her couple wins the reproduction lottery. No doubt that, too, will split along the seams. She's looking for the missing merger with her mother, which the lovability of a baby cannot supply. At his end of the non-relationship, the robot David forever falls short of communicating that he loves her in countless unfinished letters. Psycho Mom concludes that since the robot's communication skills can't be fixed, David is due to be sent back to the factory. In his childhood, Aldous's mother was transfixed by the loss of a daughter. He was sandwiched in between the dead sister and a newborn younger sister upon her arrival. It turned out that the love on hold for the stillborn baby could still be born for the new girl, which meant he was better off at boarding school. Within the corpus of his robot identification, Aldous never replaced his sister, who shared with him her undeath, his artificial life. He was never happier than when his pacemaker nailed his identification with robots in the close quarters of an undead or live transmission. The Aldous story illuminates the underworld of the Pinocchio tale. Collodi was a pen name which the author first adopted in 1860 and borrowed from the name of the town in which he had spent most of his childhood. It was his mother's birthplace. He was born in Florence, the first of ten children. Only two others survived. In an enigmatic sense that their brother picked up on, the seven had died without a name or any strings attached. After another ten years bearing the special name, Collodi turned to literature for children. He had no children of his own, no reproduction substitutes. And with the Pinocchio story, made the name he made for them stick.
that Aldous's cameo as a robot child goes by the name David drops to the crypt of the other modern fairy legend, Peter Pan. Aldous learned a good deal from James Matthew Barry, but not the hardest lesson of all. The innocence of a child has a mean streak a mile wide. David Barry, J.M. Barry's older brother and his mother's favorite, fell ice skating and died the day before turning 14. His mother's consolation avowed out loud was that David would never grow old in her memory. James tried to be David, a trick that almost worked in the dark in Netherland when he appeared before his mother dressed in his dead brother's clothes. Barry kept it close to the chest or coffin, never means that he didn't wish David dead. In person, J.M. Barry was the gnomic embodiment of a childhood forever stuck on a preteen boy on ice. Grown up a hard-hearted stalker, he went on to elaborate the fiction of Neverland and the fantasy environs of spiritualism, where bird boys never grow closer to genital sexuality than the cusp of 14. The fringe benefit of the fantasy equation between believing in fairies and keeping them alive is circumvention of the adult injunction to bury, which the author bore in his patronymic. He made the mother figure or substitute, Wendy, responsible for making all the preteen adventurers or delinquents cross their hearts and hope to die. While these cases can only be studied one at a time, in theory, we can follow Melanie Klein, who introduced through her notion of an inner world of posthumous relations, a modification of the crypt befitting a norm of mourning, basic to psychic reality. She turned Freud's threefold application of reality testing in his brief essay, Mourning and Melancholia, around its underworld ambiguity into clear text. The ghost is clear. What external reality is good for is as a control disambiguating the influence of the unconscious and the ongoing course of reality testing the inner world. The theory of castration means that to be initiated into the law of substitution is to be inured to any subsequent loss. As Freud wondered out loud, why then is mourning so painful? Perhaps because our foundation in castration means that there can be no first contact with the loss that befalls us. We mourn over the other's end in oversight. It was to head us off at this impasse that Klein set up the inner world smack dab in the middle of the psychic reality of mourning. The inner world of reality testing is where a new loss strikes first. With each loss, the inner underworld is shaken to its foundations which the work of mourning must, in the first place, shore up, even reincorporating the original occupants before the new ghost can be given shelter. Klein's modification of the crypt wraps the primal questions of fantasy, where do babies come from and where do the dead go? In a later essay, she introduces the imaginary twin at the front of the line of unborn casualties, of a young child's wish to be an only child, which recoils as a sense of loneliness at the border to psychosis. Who was born or am I completely born are twin questions often associated with Samuel Beckett's work. 
That there is, after all, an answer to the basic question of conception aligns the unborn with the undead before a questioning that, forever begging an answer, must be posed ultimately to upend the sentencing of loss. Who died? Whose loss is it? The undecidability that allows each party to a loss to lose, to be lost to, the other, loops through Philip K. Dick's application of alternate reality, always as present reality, his expansion of the finite recording surface of a multiplied remembrance. Dick's origin story, according to which he first embarked with his twin sister on this alternation of realities following his or her birth or death in infancy, heads off the death wish, the great explainer at the impasse. Never say never the twain or twins shall meet. By Klein's metapsychology, our identifiable lost objects are our inner world twins, identical but for the shadow of a difference that lies between the sexes. We pry loose along the seams of seeming difference, the drag of mourning, from psychotic splitting and doubling, the pre-edible turbulence that Klein designated the paranoid schizoid position. The relationship to the undead twin ushers in what Klein called, in saving contrast, the depressive position. <laughs> 